Today's scripture reading will be found in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Please open your Bibles and follow along with me. You can also find the words on the screen behind me. Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Heather, for reading the scriptures for us. 
Well, good morning. Hey, if you're new with us, uh, welcome to the Parks Church. Um, We are studying through the book of Acts. That's what we do. We preach through books of the Bible here, and we are uh, picking up uh, Acts chapter 8 this morning. First 25 verses, as as she read, and we'll walk through that uh, largely uh, verse uh, by verse. And so, uh, Yanni or Laurel? Uh, blue or yellow? What color is the dress, right? Um, uh, how many of you tried to stand up a broom recently uh, and took a picture of it, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about in one of those three cases? Seriously, lift your hand, lift your hand, everybody. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is even maybe more impressive? Okay, so the six of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, uh, but, but in a room this large, and my name was pr- pretty similar, um, most people knew uh, about these kind of viral uh, moments that, that moved really from, from just a picture or a, a couple people out to the masses uh, very quickly, right? And, and I think every millennial and younger's dream, right, is to what? Uh, go viral, right? And get rich or get famous. I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to understand that one, and I'm a millennial. Um, but you're like, what does this have to do with Acts 8? Um, everything, really. Uh, Luke, the writer of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, is writing to a man named Theophilus. You can see that at the beginning of Luke and also in Acts. And this, this man, Theophilus, and one of the questions I'm convinced that Luke is trying to answer for Theophilus is this question. Is how did the Gospel, how did the message of Jesus Christ spread so quickly through the known world? How in the world did it spread? This message of Jesus spread so quickly. Because if you think about it, and some scholars believe they have like down to the date nailed when Jesus died on the cross, right? And that's April 3rd, AD 33, right? And so we can just take the the year AD 33 in a general sense of Jesus dying. The book of Acts was written sometime between AD 62 and AD 70 at the latest, right? So the earliest would be AD 62, the latest would be AD 70. So in about 30 to 35 years from Jesus' death and resurrection to the writing of Acts, how in the world did this message of, of, of the gospel spread from Jerusalem, from a small group of people to permeating the known world, where we will read in Acts chapter 28, the final chapter, that Rome has been permeated, right? That's the end of the known, known world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in other words, what were the elements to its virality, right? How did the gospel go, go viral in such an extreme way? Because now hundreds of thousands of people are following the message of Jesus in such a quick time. Acts chapter 8, I believe, gives us some of these elements to the explosion of the gospel. How and the why. And I hope even you, now that you're looking at or hearing it with those lenses, you, you remember back to what Heather is reading. So if you have your notes, you have the, 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 the study guide of Acts on your lap. The first one I want you to think in terms of why and how the gospel exploded through the known world is this. Look at it in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And he's not talking about his execution, okay? He's talking about what precedes this in the, the, the murder and taking of life of Stephen. Uh, Stephen has just been martyred, right? He is the first martyr in the church. They stoned him. And it is saying that Saul approved of his execution. And from this execution, right, what happens? Look at it at the rest of verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So here, what do we see? The spreading or the scattering or the explosion of the gospel started. What was the catalyst, right? Persecution. 
Persecution was the catalyst to the explosion and the spread of the gospel. Listen, the gospel always, biblically from Genesis all the way to Revelation, has been a gospel for all nations. Genesis 12, if you're in the women's Bible study, you're in the men's Bible study, you're going to hear that if you haven't heard it already. You look in places like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, Psalm 22, Psalm 98, talks about the gospel, redemption, being for all nations. Jesus himself, right, the theme verse in Acts, right, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, says this, before he ascends to be with the Father after his resurrection, says, listen, disciples, church, here is the marching orders. Wait, because you are going to receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of what? Being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so listen to me. In our study of Acts, Acts chapter 8 is a massive chapter. It is a pivot. It's a turning point where we see Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these marching orders by Jesus actually being carried out. But what was the catalyst? The start was because of persecution. It wasn't because Samaria said, hey, let me, let's open up our borders. Or Judea said, hey, listen, let's welcome them into the region. It was because Jerusalem came heavy persecution where Christians were being put in prison, were being murdered by Saul. Saul was in all the wrong ways, though, helping and advancing the gospel, which we're going to see in chapter 9, that saves him. And I think Saul is introduced here, and he's painted as this executor, or this imprisoner, at least, of Christians, to show the contrast between chapter 8, Saul, and chapter 9, Paul. That no one is outside of the salvation of our God. Here we have a persecutor, a murderer, a killer of Christians being saved by our God. But I want you to understand that the church, as the institution of the church, the way in which God set it up is that the church has always been and always will be a scattered community. It will always be a people who are sent out from the gathering, right? We see this very clearly in Acts chapter 8. Now, they didn't go looking for persecution, Hear me, the apostles and the the early Christ followers, they weren't going, okay, how can we get persecuted so that we can fulfill the mission of Christ? No, no, no. What happens first? They were being obedient to the mission of Christ, full of the spirit, giving witness to the gospel. And what followed? Persecution. What followed was God fulfilling his command, his plan, right? And scattering them out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you think back to Acts chapter 5, I find this very interesting. Acts chapter 5 is really where um, the apostles are being persecuted in front of the council. If you remember that scene, there's a guy who steps up, a non-believer, right? Who's part of this council. His name is Gamaliel. And he says, listen, send the apostles outside. Send, send, Send these guys outside. I want to talk to this group. And we kind of get to peer into what he says. And he says to this group of leaders who have the power and who are persecuting them, who ultimately will kill Stephen, this is what Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 says to them. He says, men, why are we threatened by this? We've seen this before with these wannabe messiahs who come up and they have these disciples and they are, they're, they're claiming a false message. What happens when they're dispersed and when they're persecuted? He goes, you see it, it goes away. He says, however, if in the dispersing, And if in the persecution of these men, they don't go away, here is the warning, Gamaliel says, from a non-believer. I think he speaks prophetically. He says, we are not just going to be persecuting some guys. We are going to be found as opposing God himself. 
you're seeing that come to fruition here in Acts chapter 8. That the spread of the gospel is not getting weaker and weaker. It's advancing more rapidly and with more, uh, more vigor than ever before. And listen, that is the way the message and the advancement of the gospel works. You talk to churches around the world who are being persecuted to this day with death and imprisonment like we're reading in Acts and talk about the health and the spread of the gospel. It's like wildfire. But what's it look like in our, in our country? What's it look like in, in, in our nation? You read most statistics, you can see that the church as we know it, if you will, is on the decline. That the largest religious sect is now the, the group known as the nuns, right? Not the N-U-N-S, okay? It's the N-O-N-E-S, right? It's the nuns. No religious affiliation. They want nothing to do with it. And, 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 and for a long time, the church was, was fearful. It was scared over that. But listen, for me, I feel like that's setting the groundwork for revival. That it's setting the stage for God to do something powerfully for, for far too long. And I'm speaking in our context, the church, me, myself included, have just been lulled to sleep by comfort. But always we see biblically trials and tribulation and persecution is the catalyst to the advancement and explosion of the gospel. Right here we see it permeating the known world, Acts chapter 8, to the ends of the earth. And what is front and center? Persecution. Listen, church, this is not something we fear. Right? This is not something that, that, that we shrink back from, but we take heart and listen where we, we begin to actually sing songs like, I will not be shaken in moments where we are deeply and on the surface, deeply, possibly shaken. See, I wonder if a practical point here, even in the first verse, is not this. Luke and the Holy Spirit today is not combating our nominalism. Right? Combating my own comfort, right? What would happen if persecution like this struck today? What would it look like in the church? What would it look like in our church? What would it look like in, in my life? And if I'm honest, my first instinct when something like this happens is to fight back. Right? And, and, and again, some of you took it spiritual, like, this is how I find my... No, no, I'm not talking about... Like, like to literally... I'm tone deaf, by the way, if you didn't know. Um... It's to fight back in our own strength, right? In my own intellect, in my own power, put together our own resources. And that's how we're going to combat it. We're going to wield our, our, our own forms of power, whether it's corporately or, or, or politically, maybe literal weapons even in some cases, which we've seen historically in the church. Wrongly so. I would wonder if there would be what's painted here in Acts chapter 8, a scattering that led to gospel proclamation? Or would it be a huddling that leads to self-preservation? I'm going to tell you where my tendency is. That when things like this happen, it's to pull together and hunker down. But the call of the believer, the call to the church, is that the scattering is to proclaim the gospel. That persecution is the cost of achieving Christ's mission in our lives individually and corporately. And this is also the catalyst in seeing it move forward. And we're seeing it around the world. And listen, just because it's not happening in our country, right, does not mean it's not actually happening around the world. It is happening around the world, church. And I long for us to catch up to it to see it happen and to see it move. And, and the second point is this, for the spread, I think is found in verses four um, and five. 
is that it was ordinary people went around gossiping the gospel. So you have persecution being the catalyst to the spread of the gospel. Then in that spreading, in that scattering, you have ordinary people just talking about Jesus, gossiping the gospel. And I wish I could take credit for gossiping the gospel. It's such a cool, cool phrase. It's actually from Michael Green. He's a theologian. He's an Anglican guy. He wrote a book on evangelism in the early church. And this is what he says. And he, he drops this line. He says, this must often, talking about evangelism, talking about spreading verbally of the gospel. He said, this must often have not been formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Right? It's not the paid professionals. This is the community. This is ordinary people. Philip is not an apostle. We'll talk about that in a second. But he just went, they just went around in these regions gossiping the gospel. And what was the consequence? Because listen, the paid professionals are supposed to say those things. They're supposed to carry that message. But where are the apostles in this scene? They're back in Jerusalem. They're not scattered. It says, consequently, they were taken seriously and spread the movement. Because the paid professionals aren't taken seriously and don't spread the movement. You laugh. But that's how it exploded. That's how the gospel exploded when ordinary people took on the mission and heart of Christ and began to gossip the gospel everywhere they went. Listen, if advancing the gospel is left up to the professionals, how far does it go? Right? If it's up to Aaron, if it's up to Sam, it's up to me, like, hey, you guys, that's it. The, You know how far it goes? It goes to that back wall. That's about how far it goes. And again, I get to our neighborhoods and all this. I get, yes, I get it. But listen, we cannot go where you go, where God has sovereignly and strategically placed you, where we as a church try to say, listen, we are a church that gathers like this and we are a church that lives the majority of our lives scattered outside of here. I can't go where you go. Right? I, I, I can't go to Raytheon, right? I'm getting tased in the parking lot, all right? Whatever those folks are doing over there at Raytheon, right? I can't go to the boardroom. I can't go to the classroom, right? I can't be the administrator. I can't be at the law firm. I can't be at the courthouse. I can't be, be in, in your home parenting your kids, right? I like all of those things. God has sovereignly placed you there on mission to gossip the gospel. And he's not using gossip in a negative term. He's talking about something that just flows from us eloquently, naturally, enthusiastically. Man, I wish we were gossiping the gospel. Instead, we're oftentimes gossiping lies and mistruths and bettering ourselves. But may we be a church gossiping the gospel. That's what we see in Philip. And Philip, like I said, is not the the apostle or disciple Philip that's explained in, in, in all four gospels. This is a different Philip. This is a Philip from Acts chapter 6 when he's assigned alongside Stephen uh, this, this role of taking care of the widows. This is that Philip. That's why I said this, this ordinary guy is not an apostle. I'm not an apostle, right? We're all just ordinary people gossiping the gospel. But Philip, it keys in on him for whatever reason to share his life, to share what he talked about. And, and what most scholars say is that, that Philip, his partner in ministry, because they always send him out two by two, his partner in ministry, you know who it was? Stephen. Stephen, they both would have been Hellenistic Jews. They went out and they most likely served together, loved each other. And now Philip, his partner in ministry, has just been killed for the name of Jesus. And he watched it. He witnessed it. And so Philip, he, he flees. He runs to Samaria. And what does he do? 
He doesn't say, hey, let me catch my breath for a second. And we're going to talk about why Samaria here in a second. Philip goes there to this city, a big city, right? But a city small enough where they would have known Philip as a visitor when he arrived. Somebody who didn't look like them, somebody who didn't talk like them, and somebody who had a very different message than what they believed. Philip had one goal in going to Samaria, and that was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was to tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that Jesus has told them to go to the ends of the earth. And here he is in Samaria declaring that message. Third, I think this in verses 6 through 8, the reason for why and how the gospel spreads is because the gospel word, the word of the gospel, was matched with gospel deeds. So gospel words and gospel deeds were both evident in this area, this region known as Samaria. And look at it in verse uh, 6 through 8. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Did you hear that? So with one accord, they listened to him because of the words he said and what they saw. Did you hear that? So this is very clearly talking about both the gospel words and deeds going forth from Philip. And so here's where I want to just spend just a, a little bit of time to, to talk about this. Right. And, and, and I think oftentimes we can we can just be reductionists and, as Christians, as churches and just go, listen, everything's spiritual. Right. Because what you see here is you see these needs being met. Right. Uh, demon possessed. You can you can see uh, people being who are lame, walking all these incredible miracles. See, we can be reductionists and just going, OK, everything's spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. Neglecting the tangible and literal needs, the physical needs of people or on the other side. Listen to me. You know, and, and, and again, this is a not necessarily an invalid indictment on, on some people is just, hey, you're just all about social justice. You're just all about meeting the tangible needs. You're just kind of laser focused in that. Yet you're missing the, the most important thing. And that's people's souls. Right. That's the fact that we're separated from God. And the only way to make up that separation is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so, listen, there is a balance biblically in there. You see, the enemy wants to pull us to both extremes. Right. To go, listen, every backache is a spiritual result, right? It's where you're looking for Satan and demons under every rock, okay? Like, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible also will say in the same way that it might also be something spiritual. It, may hold, it holds in the, in the same hand. Yes, there is a spiritual reality and there is a physical reality. And I think what we're seeing here with Stephen is that he is addressing, he is talking about in the early church, you'll see it. You will see both and together. As the Parks Church... We want to hold both of those in tension. We realize the most important thing for humanity is for them to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But when that happens, we are commanded and called to meet the physical needs and tangible needs of our brothers and sisters, us, around us, and also those who don't know Christ. That's where we get do, do good to all, right? That's where we get common good. That's where we say have seek the welfare of the city from the scriptures, right? So it is, our, it, is, it is in our identity from God as believers, as those reconciled with him, to serve the tangible needs of those around them. And we see that happening. You see, Paul would, would put something like this in 1 Corinthians 12.10. And 1 Corinthians 12.10 is a list of all the spiritual gifts. And I think this one kind of gets skipped over, but I want us to look at it. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. 
to another various kinds of tongues and to another interpretation of tongues. And so what happens is that one in the middle there kind of gets taken, the one to distinguish different kinds of spirits, gets lost between prophecy and tongues, right? And, and so listen, as a church, we believe that all of the gifts of the spirit are alive and active and good for the body today. Okay, we believe that wholeheartedly, including the gift of being able to distinguish between spirits. What in the world does that mean? You see, one, it means that you have a gift given by the Holy Spirit to be able to distinguish what is true, what is truly the gospel and what is false. What is it from from truly the capital S spirit or what is from lowercase s spirit, which is true and which is false. Also, I think this means that you have the ability to peer into a situation, whether you're praying, whether you're meeting with someone and going, okay, listen, this is a physical issue or this is a spiritual issue, right? And we're going to take it to the Lord. You see, oftentimes people go, should we see the same things that happened in Acts happen in the church today? And my answer to them is this, yes and no, right? What we're seeing here in Acts chapter eight, these are miracles, We're seeing very clearly miracles happen. And so again, like I just said, yes, we believe the fullness of the Spirit is alive and active today. However, I say no, and not as a way just to be confusing, but as a way to be as honest, just honest to the Scriptures as possible, to say there are certain things in Acts that are unique to Acts. Right? So so we need to let the book of Acts be Acts. See, in verses 14 through 16, right? If you've got your Bibles, look there. If chapter 8, this is one of the most unique scenes ever. We need to let Acts be Acts. Acts was written at a time where something new is starting, known as the church. And God moves and operates uniquely in this time. And so we have to weigh what those are. This is one of those moments. Look at it. Acts 14, verse 14 through 16. Somebody's at your front door already. I love technology, right? Just that, that that pause was spirit given, by the way. So right here it says, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and wonders. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they went to, they went to them, Peter and John. So now they're bringing in the big guns, if you will, Peter and John, the apostles are coming to Samaria to kind of validate what's going on here with Philip, this revival that's taking place. Next who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What? So they had been baptized in the Lord Jesus, yet the Spirit had not come to them until they laid hands? Yeah. Unique. A unique moment where they were coming and they were validating that this wasn't just a a, a rogue revival, if you will, but that the Spirit of God was part in this. And they were being faithful and believing and baptizing and doing all those things. But the apostles, right, capital A apostles, which no one is anymore, okay, came and said, this is true. This is the work of God happening here. And one of the things I love at the end of this section, um, verse 8, that we're looking at, it says that there was so much joy in that city, like in Samaria, right? In this region, there was so much joy going out because people were actually being liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was true freedom and not just physically, but spiritually. And there was so much overwhelming joy in the city and the apostles, what you just read there, validated it. It's like, this is a work of God. 
And so believers and unbelievers alike were experiencing the joy that comes from the gospel being preached and lived out. Let me tell you, practically here in our city, we are we get just a, an ounce to experience that in our city by what God has done in and through the Parks Church. Right? Both both proclaimed word and also practically. I think of things like Hope Clinic or what Aaron was talking about with the grocery ministry. Giving groceries to our school. The city is rejoicing over those things. Not because they're going, man, God is so good and Jesus is so right. It's going, no. People are being fed. The tangible needs are being met. That the, the, the uninsured are being served and they're being served with dignity and care. We understand the heart behind it is to proclaim the, the gospel, but the city is still rejoicing. It's the same thing Proverbs says, that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. I think that's Proverbs 11. That when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. This isn't talking about just believers. It's talking about the community around who are reaping the benefits, the common good from true believers. Fourth, why did the gospel explode? Because the gospel brought racial reconciliation. I'm convinced Acts 8 is a key verse to show the reconciliation power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're like, where are you getting that, Kyle? Verse 5, this is how it would have been read. Philip, by just somebody reading, first century reader. Philip went down to the city of Samaria? He's a Jew! Samaria? Wait, they, they don't go there. Thousands and thousands of years of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other religiously, geographically, racially. Why is Philip there? One, because the Spirit led him there to those people. But two, because Philip knew there was no way the people who were persecuting him were going into Samaria to get him to kill him. Jews would avoid Samaria. They would go miles out of the way. And Philip there, also being somewhat of an outsider himself in Jerusalem, would have walked into Samaria, again, a foreigner, but with a message of reconciliation going, listen, this hatred, this wall that divides us can be gone because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reconciles us to one another, makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians about tearing down the wall of hostility. Listen, racism for all of history has been ripping apart nations and people. What is the answer to it? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the answer. That is the reconciliatory power of Jesus on display through the kingdom of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no place for racism in the kingdom of God or in the church of Jesus Christ. But listen, yeah, it is amen. But it's not enough for us just to give it lip service. We go back to point number two that says, listen, it was the gospel proclaimed in word and deed. So they proclaimed the truth and then they also lived according to it. That the gospel of Jesus, hear me, if you don't hear anything else at all, comes to all of us right where we are and binds us together to one another. And when the world peers in and looks in and sees and goes, how could a Jew, Philip, and a Samaritan now be standing by one another and worshiping together? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the solution. And hear me. It is not just going to be because of better programs or efforts. It's going to be because God does it. 
God alone does this kind of reconciliation in our hearts and in our community. And so a question I want to ask is, are we as a church, the Parks Church, seeing things that can only be explained by God? Right? This is one of those things that can only be explained by God. Salvation is one of those things that can only be explained by God. Miraculous healing only be explained by God doing it. Now, the question is, if we're not, why are we not? Are we asking? Are we pleading with God? God, show us, move in us, give us that heart. Compel us towards people. Break us, humble us. Where are we guilty of these things? And the last point, and it's actually the bulk of the text, is that the apostles guarded the purity of the gospel. And this is verses 9 through 25. It, 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 it's, it's like a subplot in this whole thing. Verses 9 through, through 25. You see, up to this point, we've just seen persecution. We've seen the lamenting over Stephen. We have seen a revival break out in Samaria, an unlikely place. We've seen the gospel reconcile people to one another. We've seen joy in a city. But verse 9 has a word at the beginning, but. And it, it should be felt as like a dark undertone, like dun, dun, dun. But. Listen to what's next. And what follows is a man named Simon. And a man named Simon was notorious in Samaria. He was a magician. And don't think rabbit out of a hat magician or like, hey, I got you your card. Is this your card? Yeah, it's your card. Okay, cool. You know, not like that. We're talking magic that was empowered by evil, that was strong in forces because it was demonic. This is what Stephen, op- uh, what, excuse me, Simon operated in. He was arrogant. He was prideful. It says that he himself said he was somebody great. That was in the text. I don't know if I laughed when Heather read it again. He said he was somebody great. And this is the area and people all around him were wowed and gave him attention because of the power with which he displayed until, listen to me, until real power got there. In the real power, the liberating power they were looking for, Philip came declaring in Jesus Christ. But here's what's confusing, guys. Verse 13. And this is not, this is not like a happy ending sermon. I'm going to tell you that right now. Verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, continued with Philip. Simon believed, it says, and was baptized. But the question I want to lay before us Was he converted? Was he really saved? He believed and was baptized. He waded into those waters. It should show us that baptism doesn't save, by the way. But he believed. He raised his hand. He walked an aisle. He said a prayer with the pastor. He was with Philip. He was with the pro. He was with the guy leading this revival. But was he saved? And I think the answer as we unpack, and maybe as you heard it, would be this. No. You say, Kyle, where are you getting that? Let's read verse 17 and 18. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone to whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. He sees the power of God on display through these apostles and he goes, I want that. I want that. Let me pay for it. How much do you need? 
How much money do you need? And here's where you're seeing the difference between a miracle that Stephen is working and magic. And I put a little, little, uh, uh, little thing up. Magic with Stephen we see is about self, right? I can do all these things. It's promotion, manipulation. The miracle of Stephen, even in the salvation, the revival going forth, is true authority over the spiritual and physical realms that always point to Jesus. It didn't point back to, to, to Philip. It didn't point back to the apostles, Peter and John. It pointed to Jesus. He is the one that saves. The gospel is on display. And Simon goes, how do I pay for that? How do I get that kind of power so more people know me? And Peter uses some of the strongest language we hear out of Peter. In verse 20, he says, may your silver perish with you. I'm going to translate this not to be crass. I'm going to translate this so that it is clear what Peter is saying. Peter says, may you and your silver go to hell. That is an actual, and again, not to be crass, you, you have a King James Version Bible. It says, may your silver and you go to perdition. You see, here is why I think Peter is seeing through Simon, seeing through false believism. Listen, and in revivals, you're going to have false and fake conversions. Peter is seeing through that and going, listen, I see what you're asking for. Your silver and you will have none of it. And here's why. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You thought your own ability saved you. You thought your own power. You thought your own influence is what made you or gave you the gift of God in Christ. He said, you're mistaken. You can't buy the gift of God. If there's anything more relevant to us in our context, it's that. It's my power. It's my money. It's my influence. It's my attendance. It's, it's this church. I'm with Philip. I'm doing the things. I was baptized. I raised my hand. I prayed the prayer. Philip's going, it doesn't matter. Your heart is not changed. And he goes in verse 21 and he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. That is the end of that verse is what gets me. There is no way Peter would say that to Simon if he was saved. The very, the very foundation of our salvation is this, that our hearts are right before God in Christ. No merit, no earning. And he goes, your heart's not right before God. But listen to this. He still lays the gospel out for Simon. He's not like, you're written off. You're done. You've proved yourself. Your true colors are shown. He says what in verse 22? His first words out of his mouth. Repent. Please, re turn. Change. See the gospel for what it is. It's not about self-effort. It's not about what you can purchase. It's not about what you can do. It is about the salvation, the free gift of God in Christ alone. Repent. Turn. In verse 24. And Simon answered and said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Oh, oh, is that repentance? No, this is like the first fire insurance prayer, right? Like, I, I don't want that bad stuff to happen to me. So pray, pray for me instead of going. God, I'm sorry. God, I've heard the gospel. I, I've even professed it with my lips. I've waded into the waters of baptism. I want to turn from my ways. 
my self-promotion, my self-glorification, my self-salvation. And I want to turn to you, Christ. Like that, That's what was before him. And instead he said, pray for me that those bad things wouldn't happen to me. See, I think what Luke is doing in, in Acts 8, the beginning, is he's showing us the spread of the gospel, how it's permeating, how Acts 1-8 is carrying out. But he's also giving a warning to what the gospel is not. The gospel is not something we just peddle. The gospel is not something we just raise our hand with easy believism and go, hey, I just want to escape hell. The gospel is something when it is really grasped in our life, calls us and challenges us to repent or turn mentally and physically in our hearts away from sin and to Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? Like Simon grieves me. Simon is not mentioned in the rest of scriptures. And the only place that Simon is mentioned, and he's mentioned actually frequently, is with the early church fathers. The early church fathers call Simon the arch villain of the early church. They call Simon the father of Gnosticism. What, what is Gnosticism? It doesn't matter. It was just a major heresy that ran through the church. Simon. But the same gospel that was laid out before Simon is laid out before you and me this morning. And it's not one that we just slip into and go, yeah, so I escape hell. It's one that by faith we turn from our sin so that we might, through Christ, have a relationship with God. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm asking that your spirit do what only you can do that you would open blind eyes and shake hard hearts. God, there is nothing more terrifying to us as leaders and pastors and then leading people who believe that they're saved and converted who truly aren't. But God, you do the saving. It's not men and women's eloquence or even our lifestyle that converts people. It's the spirit of the living God that converts you save those like Saul who are the furthest away, who, who oppose you. And you save those who are in such proximity to the gospel, yet who have never believed it. You save both of them equally. So Lord, I pray that you would do that in our church. You would do that this morning. And God, I pray for those of us who have confessed Christ, who have repented from our sins, who are living, trying to live in obedience to the scriptures. God, that you would bring us to places of repentance where we have just erred, where we're relying on our own strength and our own wealth and our own attendance or whatever we're relying on that's not you, that you remind us and wash us in the gospel again this morning. And God, I pray for us as a community that we would be a witness to this city, to our workplaces and our schools and our homes and our neighborhoods and our streets, living as a scattered people, showing and declaring the goodness of Jesus, that we gossip him everywhere we go. God, I thank you for the power of the gospel that saves souls like mine. So God, I pray that you would do that more and more in the Parks Church. Bring the greatest of miracles, I pray, 
so that you might receive the glory and honor forever. Amen and amen.